There's an exciting event coming up in the world of golf. It's an event that I believe talks about the cutting edge of golf that influences the entire golf industry years after it even happens. It's that bleeding edge where people are working and studying to help us understand and get better at this game. It's the 2018 World Scientific Congress of Golf. And today we're going to talk about it. You are listening to the Golf Science Lab podcast. My name is Cordy Walker, and I am on a mission to figure out how to improve the way that we learn and get better at golf. I've been lucky enough to travel all over the world and talk with leading instructors and researchers, learning how they're helping students and what that means for you. So today we are talking about the World Scientific Congress of Golf because I think it's an important event. And I was actually able to attend the last one in 2016 that happened in St. Andrews. And it was really amazing to sit and hear all the research that's going on in this industry and spend time to learn more. It was truly phenomenal. The sessions that I was able to sit in on uh, and the research that I learned has helped me understand what's going on better. As far as this game moving forward, it's led me down some paths that have brought some different content to you all. And it's been fantastic because this year I've actually been able to be on the organizing committee for the Congress in 2018 here in Abbotsford, British Columbia, which is nearby to Vancouver. And it's all about research and what's going on in golf. So researchers submit their studies to the committee. Some are accepted to be presented, whether that's in a session or via poster. And if you can attend, you can sit in and learn a bunch of interesting researches in different streams. So there are different topics that you can go and focus in on and hear those. Uh, it, the great thing about going to the actual event is that you can sit in these and learn. Let's say that there's someone that talks about, I remember there's one really interesting one on quiet eye putting that they we'd learned at one of the sessions. You can go and find that person and have a conversation about their study and ask them, you know, your particular questions in, in the hallways or in between sessions or at the dinners. Uh, that's the great thing about attending is that there's all this content, but you get to talk with the people there and, and ask them. And if you're an instructor and you haven't heard about this, but you want to kind of stay on that cutting edge, check it out. This is going to be geared for you as a committee. We've talked about making sure that this is really relevant for golf instructors as well. So Something to look into if you're interested is, is in July, uh, and you can find more at golfscience.org. But today, I wanted to just go through some of the keynotes that are talking, because I thought it'd be interesting to kind of see who they're going to be and share with you some of what they are working on. And we're going to start off with Dr. Mark Guadagnoli. He's a professor of neuroscience and neurology for UNLV, and he's the director of the Motor Behavior Laboratory there as well. Really fascinating guy who's worked with the golf team there a lot. Has a lot of great experience. So he is going to talk here a little bit about Challenge Point and some ideas for us to improve our learning. It's really interesting. There's prior to the mid 2000s, there had been a lot of research that looked at areas like uh, you probably heard some of this with Bob and and Tim, contextual interference, interleaving practice, part-whole practice, KR, feedback, those kinds of things. And, and they all seem to have mixed results uh, in that it would say, for example, if you practice in a repetitive way, that's better during practice, but you actually learn less than if you practice in a randomized way, right? But that's only true for certain people. And for feedback, you know, more feedback is bad, 
less feedback is better, but that's only true for certain people. Anyway, you put together hundreds and hundreds of studies and you start to see these odd trends that it's this interaction between the, the difficulty of the task and the individual that's performing it. And so that really led Tim and I to start thinking about it differently and saying, it's not that it's a one size fits all, this is better. It's what fits best for the individual. And so there really became two important pieces, I think, that came out of this. One of them is that it scales to the individual. So what, what might be the best practice for you may be you know, too hard for me or vice versa to optimize our learning. The other thing is that what is the best practice for you at one point may not be the best practice for you at another point. And so one of the things that you see people do a lot of times is they'll practice the same way over and over and over again. And what Challenge Point says is that you, you reach this point of diminishing returns if you're doing that. And that's why a lot of people will tend to get better and then level off because they haven't continued to challenge themselves along the way. So, and, and the other thing that's interesting, the research comes from, you know, motor behavior. It also comes from cognitive learning, like, you know, in school. It also comes from work with Parkinson's patients and, and uh, people in physical therapy clinics. It comes from all over different areas because ultimately what we're talking about is human learning. And, and the challenge point actually scales to all of these different areas. The medical community, for example, has picked up a lot of challenge point to teach their surgeons now because that's almost as important as golf, right? Okay, so let's take you as a beginning golfer and then as a more advanced golfer, right? So as a beginning golfer, you don't want to change things have too much variability in practice because you're pretty variable by yourself right you hit a seven iron ten times and it's not going to go the same place and so you're creating some of that variability so you would want to use what's known as a blocked practice okay so you hit the seven iron several times in a row i always suggest that you never hit more than three shots in a row before you back away and kind of think about what you did and step forward, partially for tempo, partially for, you know, really letting the cognition take place. But then you hit another three shots and another three shots. And you're doing this with your seven iron, let's say, for example. Now, so let's say you hit 12, 15 shots with a seven iron. As an expert golfer, you would never do that because you have very little variability in your swing and in the ball flight. And there are a lot more important things than, you know, just showing that you can hit a seven iron. Now, all of a sudden, you change, you create randomness, you create pressure, you change the way that you're getting or giving feedback, you change the length of time. There's a lot of things that you do that, that are really creating more pressure. And that's one of the reasons why we have this stress-resistant learning. So less pressure when you're newer to it, more consistency when you're newer to it, and then you shift that as you move further along. Okay, so, so skill factor is obviously a major, I mean, is that the only influence on this, is just level of skill? No, that's actually, that's a really great question. So skill factor, all things being equal, is the major factor, but the fact of the matter is we're dealing with a human being, right? And so the psychology becomes really important as well. And this is where mindset comes in. 
you have some people that have a mindset that if they hit it poorly, they get it really frustrated. And, and essentially what that says is I'm not good enough. You have other people who, if they hit it poorly, they're like, okay, that's an opportunity for growth. What can I do to get better? So you overlay the psychology with the science of learning optimization, and now you've got a practice protocol. So in that exact same scenario that we just talked about, if I saw you, you know, really embracing what was happening and not being bothered by the, you know, a missed shot, uh, let's say that you top it or something, uh, you just, you know, you think about it and you decide, try to figure it out. I can probably push you a little bit harder than someone who gets really frustrated by that same missed shot. And so, absolutely, I think it's a great question. The psychology and the cognition, you know, I'm talking about cognition being how we process information and memory and those types of things. Those two things have to work together because, again, we're dealing with human beings. Have you seen someone change? Like, have you seen someone go from really resisting difficult struggle, right, and then coming to embrace it? Or is it just pretty much most people are are stuck in, in their ways. They are who they are. So you have to do the best you can with that person. Did yeah, you have any experiences a, with that? It's an all of the above, right? So, um, you know, I've, if I worked with UNLV's golf team now for 15 years. So if, if I only think about the players that have come through the program, you know, phenomenal players, Adam Scott, Ryan Moore, Charlie Hoffman, Chris Riley, all these guys. And if I only think about the UNLV players, Okay, I've seen everything you've just described. I've seen players who come in and they're so afraid of letting go of good that they never get to great. I've seen players who are like, I don't care what it takes. I don't care what I have to go through. I want to do it. And interestingly enough, so much of that is really around the mindset and around their the ego, right? And I don't mean ego like they're egocentric. I mean, how much they're protecting good or not, and those who protect good fail to get to that next level. So the Congress has actually been around since 1990, the first one was held in St. Andrews, and there have been a lot of different research presented over the years, everything from stuff about the golfer to golf courses to equipment technology. There's been manufacturers that have been a part of it that have presented research that they've done, which is super interesting. I know that Ping is still heavily involved with it. And one of the biomechanists who's involved this year, he's, he's on the organizing committee, Dr. Sasha McKenzie. He's also one of the keynotes. He's been on a number of times here with us on the Golf Science Lab. He is a sports biomechanist with a focus on engineering, in particular golf research, professor at St. Francis Xavier University in Nova Scotia, Canada. We're going to hear a short clip from him from an episode that we did on golf shafts. You can go back and hear that entire episode by heading over to golfsciencelab.com and, and searching for his name, Sasha McKenzie. Here we go. If we're talking specifically with a driver and you're trying to figure out, okay, what shaft flex is, uh, is right for me, it's one that's going to essentially for your ball speed, even though that can change a little bit with, with, with the shaft and everything kind of is, you know, mixed around a bit, but essentially for your ball speed, what's going to give you the optimal launch angle and spin rate for that ball speed. And that's the shaft that, that you should use. Now, shafts don't have a systematic effect on club head speed. So there's a general thought out there that the more flexible shaft, by some people, the more flexible shaft will give you 
more uh, club head speed. While it's true in the study that I did that um, uh, there's a variable called kick velocity, so that's how much speed is added to the club head speed due to the shaft flexing. It's the rate that the club moves from, from lagging to leading in the swing at impact in particular. So while everybody had higher kick velocity with the regular shaft, not everybody had higher club head speed with the regular shaft because as that shaft kicks forward, it actually tends to slow down the hands. And there also seems to be some really unpredictable, you know, humans are unpredictable, but some people actually, I think when they feel a certain type of flex of shaft, they, they swing it differently. Or it's possible that they swing it the same, but the way that, that shaft flex interacts with the torques they're applying to the club, it just happens to result in, in a higher club head speed. So, you know, you can see a two, maybe three mile per hour difference in club head speed between shafts of different flex. So that, you know, that could influence your, your ball speed. So, so really, you know, as you're kind of going through this trial and error process with a fitter, basically want to be looking at that uh, primarily that probably that carry number that comes up from the launch monitor. So, you know, ball speed would be the, the next most important because it's probably going to be the least likely to change. You're going to see big changes in spin and launch, but you might also see a, uh, a change in that ball speed. So really um, I'd be looking at that final carry number. So it, just to make this very, very clear. So if I have the same he driver head, and I have mm -hmm. a senior flex shaft and an extra stiff shaft, I would expect the extra stiff shaft to go have a lower launch angle than the senior flex. I would expect, expect that to be much uh, a much higher launch angle. Is that right? Because of deflection? That's correct. And let me make it even let me make it confusing a bit, or do you want to go on for a second? <laughs> no, you can make it confusing. Sure, why not? <laughs> okay, so in a recent study I did, I, I come up with this variable called bend loft. Okay, so we had a, a group of, of reflective markers on the grip and a group of reflective markers on the club head. And what that allowed us to do is determine how much of the loft at impact was due specifically to amount of shaft deflection. So for all those 33 golfers, there was more bend loft with the more flexible shaft. Okay, no matter, no matter how much they deflected the shaft, you know, there was always more deflection, lead deflection with the flexible shaft, and that resulted on average between the two shafts we're looking at with a two-degree increase in bend loft. So you would expect that you would also see a two-degree change in what I would call delivered loft. So just, just before the club head touches the ball, you would expect that, okay, when on average when these golfers swung the, the, the more flexible shaft, they get two more degrees of delivered loft as well. But there was no significant difference in, in the actual delivered loft. What approximately half the golfers did was they increased shaffling, so their hands were essentially covering the ball more. Um, so they just completely reduced uh, any influence of that bend loft. And then also within the 33, and this is taking looking at an average of 14 drives with each shaft. And then there were some people that, uh, not all of them, but some people who, who actually that, uh, did the opposite. So the more flexible club, they actually had their hands further back. So they even showed a greater amplitude change in loft. So there was this whole gamut of how 
even though bend loft was consistently more with the more flexible shaft, golfers swung these shafts differently, which, which really would change how you go about doing a fitting. Another keynote that is going to be at the Congress is Will Robbins. He's a golf coach based out of Sacramento, California. He is coming to really talk with everyone about where he sees coaching and instruction headed and hopefully give some inspiration for researchers to go out and study some things that are really relevant and practical to all the instructors and all the golfers out there going forward. And we're actually working on a a podcast together, Will and I, talking about kind of unlocking your potential and looking at what you need to do to really lower that handicap and what he uses with his students to guarantee them 10 shots in 10 weeks, lower scores if they're around that 90-100 mark, guaranteed results as a coach. That's, that's pretty cool. So we're doing working on a podcast about that. I thought we'd share a snippet of that in this episode so you can get an idea a little bit about what he talks about. I think, you know, my my career in, in golf coaching is focused on transitioning from that sort of instructor model over to a coach. And I think that's what most golfers really need to understand the difference between those two. And I think most golfers really need to start looking for a coach and looking for results rather than just information. And I think the instruction model has really gone down the information highway and um, information doesn't lead to results, unfortunately, in this game all the time, you know? So I think it's it's much better for us to start to look at, you know, how does a player accomplish goals rather than how do we get more information about how to fix a slice or how to keep our club face square or what our grip should be or another 10,000 things that you could list off that golf instructors will talk about. So I'm sure golfers have heard this coach title used more often lately because it's kind of become the thing to do, but I doubt that most know what it actually means. Could you define it? Like, what does that mean to you when you put coach in front of your name? Yeah, well, let's, uh, yeah, let's start with what it's not. So I, I think a lot of pros nowadays will say, I'm a coach. And if you ask them what that is, they'll say, well, I teach the golf on the course and I teach the mental and I teach club fitting and I teach physical and diet. And, and I'm like, okay, that's a holistic, you know, instructor. So you've got all, all the aspects of, of the game, which is really good. That's a really key part to have. At least, you know, you've moved on from just teaching swing and technique and you've moved into, to all aspects of the game. That's fantastic. But that's not really what a coach is. I think the best way for us to look at, at coaching is to start to understand outside of the game of golf. You know, when you had a coach when you were a kid, they picked the team for you. You know, they they didn't let you be the quarterback if you were no good at throwing the ball. They picked who they were going to have on their team so that they could win. And their common goal was you as players and them as a coach were focused on success. So I think the first thing that we start to understand about a coach is a coach picks their players They don't just welcome them in and say, yeah, you want a lesson? Come and work with me. It's, you know, some coaches may be specifically working with elite juniors, others beginners, others only ladies. It's not have to be about great players, but it's I'm picking a certain area and I'm going to have a common goal for this for this team. And this team might be for a group of ladies who are looking to break 80 for the first time. You know, it's what are the key things that I'm going to give you that you actually need to accomplish that goal. So there's accountability, there's a common goal, and the coach tells you what you need. Whereas in instruction, you go and tell the professional, I'd like to work on my slice, please, because I think it will get me to break 80. 
Whereas a coach says, no, I know what's going to get you to shoot less than 80. And this is what you're going to work on. So it's a, it's a very different dynamic than the current model of instruction. Gotcha. And how does that typically play out? Is that still on the range in an hourly, hourly kind of concept? Or like what is working with a coach mean in kind of like a practical sense? Well, in a practical sense, I mean, again, let's let's look at why I believe the current instruction model is broken. And because it'll, it's often easier to understand what it is by understanding what it's not, is that most players go to their coach or instructor and say, um, I want to work on my driver and I'd like to do it next Tuesday at 3.30. And so they set up a lesson and then the, the pro comes in and, and says, what would you like to work on? I'd like to work on my driver. Now, the instructor probably knows for sure it's not their driver that's the problem. They're probably poor at chipping. They have a bad mental attitude. They play way too aggressive. They don't practice particularly well. They have way too high expectations. And they those all need to be addressed. But the model says, if you'd like the $100 I'm about to hand you, we're going to work on driver. So you become the servant. And um, you know I don't know how easily a coach can succeed if, if they are a servant to their players. I understand in some ways on a more spiritual level that could be true. But the fact is, is that you have to direct your players in the right direction. And so you give them the driver lesson. And then they say, you know what, I'm going to go and practice that and I'll call you when I'd like to come back. So it's in the players' hands what they want to work on, when they want to work on it and when they're going to come back and see you. So how possibly can you, even if you're a holistic coach that works on all aspects of the game, help that player to their goals? You know, I mean, think about it, Corey. I mean, if you're with a personal trainer, if you said, look, I'm going to work out when I'd like to work out, eat what I'd like to eat, um, go on the specific things that I'd like to go on in the gym, and I'll tell you when I'm going to come next, I don't care how much weight you'd like to lose, you're not going to lose any weight because – you've taken all of the control out of the trainer's hands and put it in yours. Well, guess what? You're overweight because you don't know how to control your eating. You don't know how to control working out. You don't, don't, don't know all these things. And that's why you've hired someone to help you. But in the golf industry, we go to an instructor and say, look, I don't know how to break 90, but I think I do. So I'm going to try and fix myself. And here's what I want you to teach me. And it's just a broken model. It doesn't work. And it's not, it's not that we don't need swing instruction. It's not that we don't need, guys that are just focused on technique. But the fact is, is that if we want to get seriously good results and we want to get people guaranteed results to shoot lower scores, then you have to put them into a platform or a model that works and, and, and the hourly model doesn't. So that is that. Those are the keynotes that are going to be presenting at the World Scientific Congress of Golf. It's been really fun to be involved in this event and, and kind of talk about it and, and work on crafting this so it's really useful for all the researchers and golf instructors out there. Make sure to check your calendar. See if it's possible to attend. You can get all the details at golfscience.org. Really appreciate Glenn Kandari. He is the chair of the group and has worked really hard to get this launched and get everything in uh, in order for this. So really appreciate him. Big thanks to him for working so hard on this. And this is an awesome event. Highly recommend it if you can make it. We'll be covering some of the research that's presented there and trying to share some of the highlights of the event. So stay tuned for that. That is in the late summer in July here. Other than that, we'll be back next week with our next episode of the podcast. Hope to see you there.